0: Let's get started. Oh, well, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to start with some good advice from local nurse Wendy Sharp on how to shop at local stores safely and ethically in this age of coronavirus. And then we'll hear from Jay Scott Miller about what planets and meteor showers we can see in the night sky this month. Remember, you can still venture out into your backyards. And then we'll end the show with a rebroadcast of a public domain interview recently featured on the Grox Science Radio Show. This interview is about something we're all straining to do these days, how to properly interpret graphs and charts. But first, Wendy Sharp. Now, Wendy is a registered nurse. She's been working in the area of home health for the past 30 years, I first met Wendy Sharp at a local healthcare meeting back in 2017, and since then, I've always been impressed with her intelligent thoughts about a whole variety of topics. She's got tons of experience in patient care, clinical management, and education. She provides quite a bit of training to clinicians and is particularly interested in improving the hospice experience. For today, I ask Wendy to discuss one of the most challenging topics facing all of us in this age of COVID-19, going to the store to buy the necessities of life. That used to be so easy, and now it's so challenging. Take it away, Wendy Sharp.
1: Hi, this is Wendy Sharp. I'm a registered nurse, and I was asked by my friend Dave to do a little recording for you guys. And I'm going to share with you some thoughts I have about store safety because this comes up with a lot of my non medical friends. And I know that we're all out there moving around as little as possible, and we want to be safe when we do that. So, here are my thoughts about store safety. Some of these stores are going to stay open for essentials, like grocery and hardware stores. And you're going to probably end up in a store several times before this is all over. So, what should you do? Well, first, when you get there, when you pull into that parking lot and you're looking around at the number of cars in that space, think about how big the inside of the store is. If there are seven cars in a dollar store parking lot, that's probably a crowd. Uh, if you think about Walmart or Lowe's, it's a whole lot bigger area, so they can handle a lot more volume of people. But if you walk in and you look over the registers and they are packed and people are lined up, then I would just walk right back out. And pick another time to go shopping. Next thing I hear a lot of talk about is hand hygiene versus gloves. So healthcare professionals are used to wearing rubber gloves to make sure they are not infecting people on the job. Gloves are not magic, okay? Your skin protects you just as well from the virus as gloves. And I know some folks feel they are unable to avoid touching their faces, but that when they wear gloves, they remember, and that's fine. Uh, You might think about if you have cotton or work gloves, you could use those without wasting the medical gloves that are needed by healthcare professionals. If you really feel you have to wear medical gloves, you need to know they are going to pick up virus and spread it to surfaces. So if you wear the same pair of gloves for hours, they are covered with germs of all kinds. When we don't wear them, it's a lot faster and easier to do hand hygiene. So my recommendation for your hand hygiene when you're shopping is to do this. Before you go in, after you get out of your car, but before you walk in the store or touch anything, do some hand gel to clean your germs off of your hands and protect other people. So before you even put your hands on the cart, clean your hands with gel. Now if you've been wiping down your cart... You know, you are just moving those germs around and probably getting them on your hands anyway. So if it makes you feel better to wipe down your cart, you can. But before you touch that cart, you need to be sure that you've cleaned your hands really well. Once you get into the store, try not to touch an item unless you're committed to getting it. Now, obviously, if you pick it up and realize that's not what I want, you can put it back down. and I'm not expecting you to feel guilty, but avoid picking up lots and lots of things if you don't have to. Don't touch your face at all while you are in the store. If you have allergies and you might need to deal with itchy eyes or nose, I would carry a hanky or a pack of tissues with you so that if you have to touch your face, you are doing that uh, through a tissue. If possible, hand gel before and after you deal with that itch. If you are wearing layers or a loose shirt, you may be able to wipe your itchy face with the inside of your shirt. If you have to wear medical gloves to feel safe, they should be discarded after each use. They are thin and not designed to be washed and reworn. After you complete your checkout, you should consider your hands to be dirty. So is your credit card, by the way. That's getting handled a lot. I've elected not to try and wipe mine down every time I use it, but... Rather, I think of it as contaminated all the time, and so while we're social distancing, I'm just cleaning my hands every time I handle my cart. So now you've got all your stuff back in your cart, and you're making your way out into the parking lot. Push your cart, carry your bags out of the car, and get them loaded. Open your car door with dirty hands, but once you get in, you want to hand gel up, before you touch any surfaces inside your car. So kind of like your shirt, the inside is your germs and the outside is other people's germs. When you get your stuff home, you probably don't have to wipe it all down unless you're super susceptible. I would just put it away and then wash your hands. Obviously, any food you eat raw should be clean before you eat it. So just a note here about microbiology. Porous surfaces are much less likely to transmit viruses or any microbial disease than smooth surfaces. And the best way to visualize this is to think of whatever the item is and whether or not a drop of water would stand on the surface or be absorbed into it. So anything you would normally think of as being wipeable, that you would wipe down rather than tossing it in the washer, is something that viruses and bacteria are more likely to remain on the surface of ready to be picked up the next time someone touches it, and then carried to that person's eyes, nose, or mouth. Where something like cloth or paper will draw the virus into its fibers, where it will likely dry up and die, or at least be unable to pass from that location onto somebody's hand or another surface. You are not going to absorb pretty much any dangerous organism through the skin of your hands, unless you have an open wound. It is only the wet tissues that allow those organisms to take hold. So here's another visual for you. Seeds. Seeds need moisture and the ability for their roots to burrow in. If you are the field for this crop of viruses or bacteria, your skin is like concrete, and your eyes, nose, and mouth are fertile soil. I consider the skin to be an unsung hero among the organs of the body. It is our first line of defense against getting ill. While a virus might live for long enough on your hand to be transferred to your moist mucous membranes to infect you, it is not going to burrow through your skin. This is why frequent hand washing is so effective at preventing the spread of this and most other infectious diseases. All right, back to the store. So if you have to cough or sneeze in the store, this is going to freak out other people. So if possible... Turn away from others and cough or sneeze into your shirt. The inside of your shirt has only your germs, while the outside potentially has other people's. But if you want to use your elbow area to cover your nose and mouth, that's okay. If you forget and just reflexively cough or sneeze into your hand, then you want to wash or gel up before you touch anything that others will be touching, your cart, the groceries, the door, the keypad at the register, etc., or your face, of course. If you cough or sneeze without covering at all, so you just spray a sneeze out into the great wide open, my suggestion would be abandon your purchases and run to your car before the other shoppers turn into avenging harpies and come after you. They are not going to like you very much at that point. So that brings me to safe distancing. So a minimum of three feet for passing and six feet for sustained interaction is what I would suggest. So obviously you can't stay six feet away from people if you're in an aisle of a grocery store and you need to walk past them. I think that's okay, but don't stand there chatting to someone three feet away. You want to have six feet distance between you and strangers or people not in your household. So if no one coughs or sneezes, three feet should be very safe. Droplets can travel six feet in a sneeze, but don't panic if that happens. A droplet would need to get into your respiratory system. And how's it going to do that? Through contact with your eyes, nose, or mouth. If someone sneezes less than six feet from you, I would suggest you blow out through your nose, put some distance between you before inhaling, or wait as long as you can to inhale. You could close your eyes for a few seconds as well to try and keep any virus that might be floating or hanging in the air for momentarily from getting to your eyes. And make sure that you wash your face really well when you can and before you touch it. And that brings me to masks. So if you think you may have to cough or sneeze while you're out, wearing a mask is a good way to protect other people. I'm going to say that again. Most of the time when we think about a traditional mask or some of these cloth masks that people are making and passing out, that is a really effective way to prevent anything that you cough or sneeze out from getting on to other people or surfaces. So if you have to go out and you think you're going to cough or sneeze while you're out, then yes, you may want to wear a mask. Perhaps you have a cold or something going on respiratory-wise, you don't know what it is, but you don't have anybody to shop for you and you just have to go out. Uh, So in that case, yeah, I would wear one. If you are someone who typically wears a mask in public because of your health, then I would definitely be wearing one now. If you are healthy and wearing a mask, I just want you to know that somewhere in your community, there are nurses and other healthcare people who are being told there aren't enough masks for them to wear continuously on the job. And that the responsible thing for them is to only wear them when caring up close and personal for people who are actively coughing and sneezing, or suspected of being infected. You should know that studies show people who try to wear masks for extended periods of time tend to touch their faces more than those not wearing them. If you are wearing a mask to protect you from droplet-borne viruses like COVID-19, you also need to be wearing eye protection. People who are infected or suspected of being infected, should not be out in public. We know there are folks who are sick and asymptomatic, but as long as you maintain distance from them, you are unlikely to catch the disease from breathing without a mask in the same store they are in. Again, if you are in a high-risk group, avoid going out and wear a mask if you have to. Not sure if this helped anybody or not, but it was on my mind. Everybody needs to just stay well and listen to Andy and love each other.
0: That was Wendy Sharp, registered nurse here in the Louisville area. Well, since Wendy recorded the story last week, the CDC has now changed their recommendations about wearing masks. Wendy Sharp already talked about this, though. Since there are so many people out there who are infected with the virus but not actually showing symptoms of COVID-19, the CDC is now recommending that we do wear masks to prevent viral laden air droplets from coming out of our mouths and getting onto other people. As the CDC and Ms. Sharp mentioned, you don't need a fancy mask that really should be in the hands of a medical professional. Just place a handkerchief or any other piece of fabric around your mouth and nose to protect the public from your sneezes and coughs. Thank you, Wendy. Now let's hear from J. Scott Miller, Professor of Astronomy and Physics at Maysville Community and Technical College in Maysville, Kentucky. He'll tell us about what we can expect to see in the night sky this month. Take it away, Scott.
2: Scott here. April invokes thoughts of warmer weather, though as older Louisvillians will state, hectic weather can also be the norm in the area. The tornado outbreak back in '74 still is etched in the mind of many of us living at that time. Still, warmer weather does tempt one to linger outside in the evenings as the stars begin to shine, so I head out myself and take a look around. Getting out in early twilight, a bright star-like object still catches the eye in the western skies. Venus still outshines the real stars in the sky, so bright, seeing it in twilight is really no challenge. Venus has moved closer to us in its orbit around the sun from our point of view each day allows Venus to slip closer and closer to the setting sun setting earlier and earlier in the evening as it does so but for the moment it also serves to help find directions as it is nearly west at present so starting with the western sky more stars began appearing and before too long some recognizable patterns began to emerge as I scan left to right from that particular point. With the coming of darkness, Orion is still easy to spot. Dominating the southwestern sky as darkness falls, alignments of stars making it up can help us find stars in other constellations. The three belt stars send the eyes westward to the bright star Aldebaran. Aldebaran marks the fiery eye of Taurus the bull. The tight, V-shaped group of stars that include Aldebaran Mark the face of the bull, with extensions of the arm of the V leading to two stars marking horn tips. Between the V shaped face and Venus, a cluster of stars known as the Pleiades mark the shoulder of the bull. Returning to Orion and his well known belt of stars, a line going in the opposite direction as before leads us to Sirius, the brightest star in our night skies, though not as bright as Venus appears and the brightest star in the constellation, Canis Major, the big dog. The rest of the dog is an approximate rectangle of stars south of Sirius, bright enough to catch one's eyes in dark skies. Sirius is one of the corners. The shoulder stars of Orion can lead us to a bright star. A line from the dimmer Bellatrex to the brighter Betelgeuse heading eastward leads to Procyon. The brightest star in Canis Minor, the small dog, Small indeed, because Procyon and one other star just to its right are almost the entire constellation. Great imaginations our ancestors had. Back to Orion again for one more line drawing, this time going from Rigel, the rightmost and brighter knee star of Orion, diagonally through Orion to Betelgeuse and beyond. That line passes nearly through a pair of stars of about the same brightness, the twin stars Castor and Pollux, which marks the heads of Gemini, the twins. The bodies of these two extend along a pair of line of stars directed back toward Orion. Gemini is nearly overhead as darkness comes. Turning my back on Venus, I am now facing east, and Leo the Lion presents itself above the eastern horizon. Its brightest star, Regulus, catches one's eyes as the brightest star in that direction. Above Regulus is sort of a sickle-shaped group of stars marking the head of Leo, while more to the east of it is a right triangle of stars marking the lion's hind quarters. Catching my eye moreover to the northeast is the pattern of the Big Dipper. From now until autumn, it should be easy to spot at some point along the arc of its path in the northern sky. The two stars marking the front of its bowl, the pointer stars, provide a line northward to the north star Polaris. I note that, as usual, Polaris is the same height above the horizon and in the direction north, making it an ideal marker from which to find my directions in the night sky. Polaris is at the end of the handle of the Little Dipper, a real test of how dark or how light-polluted the skies are. Out away from city lights, the curve of the Little Dipper's handle extending away from Polaris is pretty easy to spot, as are the four stars that make up its bowl but at times when I've stargazed in Louisville, I was lucky to pick out the two stars that mark the front of its bowl. At this time of year, it would seem the Big Dipper is positioned to pour its contents into the bowl of the Little Dipper in the early evening skies. Later this month, and hopefully as temperatures become that much more favorable, a meteor shower should be visible if getting up early in the morning is not a hindrance. Overnight April 21st and 22nd, but more pronounced an hour or so before the onset of dawn on the 22nd, that is, while the sky is still dark, the Lyrid Meteor Shower may make its presence known. This shower can produce less than a dozen meteors per hour near its peak, but depending on dedication and work schedules, getting out an hour or two prior to dawn may yield more than a few from dark skies. But meteor showers are much like dimmer stars that make up most of the constellations. A good test of one's light-polluted skies. So April skies have some easy things to spot. Constellations up at this time of the year have bright stars within them to aid in the hunt. Venus still lingers in the western sky. And toward the end of the month, a chance to catch a bit of space debris. All one needs to do is to get up and out under the stars.
0: That was Professor J. Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College. Thanks a lot, Scott. Now, Professor Alberto Cairo talks about how charts and other graphical displays of information can be so useful if we just know how to interpret them. He's the author of a book called How Charts Lie. This interview was first broadcast on the Grox Science Radio Show on November twenty seventh, two 2019, By the way, that's just 10 days after the first person in Wuhan, China began suffering from the COVID-19 disease. Now we see lots of charts and graphs about the coronavirus now, so I thought you might find this interview interesting. I've had to clip a little bit here and there to fit it into our show, so check out our webpage or our Facebook page to find the internet link to the full interview this interview for Grok Science Radio Show is conducted by Frank Ling and
3: Charles Lee. Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, in this information age, making sense of information is increasingly difficult, but graphics can help. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Alberto Cairo. Dr. Cairo is the Knight Chair in Visual Journalism at the School of Communication of the University of Miami. He's the author of several works on the subject and consults with companies and institutions like Google and the Congressional Budget Office on visualizations. He's the author of the new book, How Charts Lie, Getting Smarter About Visual Information. And he joins us today to discuss this issue for a general audience. And Dr. Cairo, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
4: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
3: What do you think are some of the best tips then you can offer for people to become better readers of charts?
4: Well, the book spells out those things, right? So I'm going to basically summarize them very quickly. So the first thing is that to basically embrace the idea that chart, meaning graphs, maps, infographics, diagrams, visual displays of information, they are not illustrations. They are not things that you just need to look at, Right. Just glancing at them them, will not be enough to understand them. You need to stop and try to decode them, try to read them. So you need to pay attention to them. That's the prerequisite to everything else that comes after. And second thing is to read the source. What is the source of the data? If a chart that you see on Twitter or on Facebook or a newspaper or whatever, doesn't mention where the data comes from, where the information that is being displayed it comes from, distrust that chart, right? That period. There's no doubt about that. So any creator of charts, any designer of charts, should try to disclose the sources of the data so readers can consult what those sources are and, and whether they are reliable and trustworthy. And I would say that, you know, an attentive reader, if you have time, No, spend 30 seconds taking a look at the source and basically assessing, making sure that whatever the chart claims that is being measured is actually what is being measured, right? Right. Remember the example that I explained before about homelessness in Florida. What do you mean by homelessness, right? You need to read the source of the data to understand understand that. Then the next thing is to see whether the display of the data, the way that the data is encoded, right, uh, represented by objects, in the graphic itself, whether there are some distortions, right? Distortions sometimes happen, you know, because the designer is trying to lie to you, but sometimes they also happen because, you know, designers and journalists and scientists, sometimes they are rushed and, you know, they are a little bit careless perhaps, and they design a graphic that with the best of intentions, but a graphic that ends up misleading you just because the data is not well represented. And I I go into a lot of that in in the book about how to identify distortions in data. The, and then the most important thing, so came back again to something that I mentioned before, try not to project. Try not to read too much into the chart. It's very easy to do is to jump to conclusions too quickly when you see a chart, for instance. So try to curb. That impulse. A great part of the book is devoted to talking about, for instance, cognitive biases, right? And it's very important to become aware of our own biases. It's very easy when you read the literature about cognitive biases, and it's very extensive at the moment, it's very easy to learn how to identify biases in other people. But it is much harder to identify your own biases. And those are the ones that are most important to understand, the ones that come from your own brain. Fortunately, it is possible to do that, I believe, and I encourage readers to do
3: that. Oftentimes the problem with how people use these charts to say what they want them to say, and the recipient is not savvy enough to pack what's actually in the chart.
4: That's truly a problem. One, another problem with the way that we use charts in public discussions, and I mentioned this explicitly in the book, I say... Charts should never be, or, or at least, you know, they should not be very often, conversation stoppers. They are conversation enablers. They can begin a conversation and they can inform a conversation. But very rarely a chart will be the last point in a conversation. Just because a chart, in order to be read correctly and in order to be used correctly, it needs to be interpreted. Sometimes you need to see beyond the chart what lies behind that chart, where the data comes from, how the data should be interpreted, how the data represented in that chart connects to the conversation that that we are having. So I am a great believer in the power of charts to form conversations, but never to stop those conversations, but to push them forward and to make them better.
3: But are there cases in which charts are designed misleadingly?
4: Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, yes. And I have I have examples of that in the book, right? So for example, it's very easy to be steward. The appearance of, of several data points, if you, for instance, mess around with the uh, horizontal axis bar graph, you, may, you, know, maybe you are able to distort the proportions between the numbers that, they are, that those bars are representing. Or if you crop the horizontal axis, let's say, for instance, going back to the example of uh, the unemployment rate, right? If I show you the unemployment rate in the past 10 years or so, it is clear that the unemployment is going down. But what about if I crop the horizontal axis, the time axis of that time series line chart, right? And if I, I only show you, let's say, two or three months in the line chart, that I choose very carefully. And I choose specifically the months in, in the past 10 years in, when, in which unemployment went up, right? That's very easy. That kind of, that, that, that type of cherry picking is very common when people want to mislead with with charts. Or, you know, the way that we select The colors used in maps representing geographic patterns of data, if they are chosen carefully, you can greatly bias the perception that people may get from the data. So I try to explain many different tricks that I have seen, I would say, propagandists and, and bad actors use more often.
3: We were just talking with Dr. Alberto Cairo, his new book, How Charts Lie, Getting Smarter About Visual Information. And Dr. Cairo, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
4: Thanks so much for having me again. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you to Grok Science Radio Show for allowing us to rebroadcast this interview from November 27, 2019. Check out our website or our Facebook page to get the link to the original interview. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud So just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP-LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP-LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.